Sean Rose is the founder of Waves for Water, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to provide access to clean water for everyone that needs it. Seems like a simultaneously large but simple goal. He founded Waves for Water in 2009 when one in every six people on the planet did not have access to clean water. This means that one in six people were subject to cholera, salmonella, E. coli, plus the myriad illnesses and infections you are at risk of without basic hygiene. This problem is completely solvable. It can be solved with money and organization. And Waves for Water is collecting, allocating, and distributing those things through solutions including water filtration systems, drilling and renovating of borehole wells, and the construction of rainwater harvesting and sorting systems where groundwater isn't accessible. Over the past 11 years, John's implemented 155 clean water programs in 48 countries and provided water for an estimated 3,750,000 people. His organization has also provided disaster relief and responded to 33 major natural disasters to date, including initiatives in Nepal, Bosnia, Philippines, Indonesia, Haiti, Japan, Chile, and Pakistan. John Rose first arrived on my radar as a professional surfer in 1999. I was a senior in high school reading every surf magazine that was available. Magazines published a list of regional contest results at that time towards the back of the mag, and I saw John's name a few times, then eventually saw him featured in a Quicksilver ad when Quicksilver offered up that precious space to someone other than Kelly Slater. This was the heyday of surf magazines. Ad spaces were filled with everything from our beloved brands. Volcom was advertising Magnaplasm with a double page spread. The recently launched Hurley was showcasing the Malloy brothers. Even Radiohead advertised their new album, Amnesiac, in Surfer's annual big issue. You'd see the unlikely pairing of Kelly Slater and Bobby Martinez mugging together in a K-Grip ad and an endless list of now defunct brands like Red Sand Clothing, Anarchy Eyewear, and Animal Watches. All of this made for robust budgets for photo trips and supported a vast network of professional surfers who never needed to enter a contest to stay relevant. John Rose was lucky enough to be raised near the hub of the surf industry, and he lived just 20 miles down the coast from his sponsor's HQ. And so he was able to spend most of his year chasing waves on a mix of Quicksilver team trips and invites to join a magazine photo editorial trip. He was never going to dethrone Kelly Slater nor Tom Carroll, but the growing Quicksilver had an expanding need for marketing imagery to fill their point of sale displays at retail. Plus, they had product category expansions into watches, backpacks, footwear. And John's timeless style, power prowess, and tube savvy positioned him perfectly alongside teammates like Danny Wills and Ben Bourgeois, regional superstars who could trade waves with Kelly if they got called up to the Indies trader for the crossing. That was, of course, until 2008. I had outgrown my teenaged interest of staying current on amateur contest results. And when I did my monthly leafing through a surf magazine, Rayetveld, Royal, and Realm ads were all gone. Even the big five brands were forced to vanquish team riders who had never considered a life without a sticker on their surfboard, much less a life of physical labor or a corporate uniform. 
John Rose was in his late 20s at this time. He was recently married and had only ever increased his expenses and now is faced with a significant decrease in his income. And that's where we start our conversation today. This was recorded remotely in our respective homes, me in Southern California and John in Northern California on June 11th, 2020. My name is, of course, David Scales for Surf Splendor, and I hope that you enjoy my conversation with John Rose. hear the moment or um, when you decided to kind of officially stop pursuing professional surfing as a career? Well, the, the real moment is when you get the sobering call that like your contracts are disappearing. That's oh shoot. <laughs> Did you get that call? <laughs> well, not in so many words or exactly that way, but I mean, definitely um, there's an arc in any, in any profession really, but specifically sports or performance-based professions, there's definitely an arc, you know, there's totally. the rot, the rise and then the peak and then the backside of it. And you have to be in complete denial to not see the backside of it when you're on it. Like, you know, all the kids are better than you. Basically you're, it's not even that you're so much old. It's just whatever it is, whatever your journey is going to be within that, that career, it, you can feel it. You can feel the energy has peaked and it's going the other direction. So that that sort of downfall or let's say just downturn um, is a bunch of things. That's like the realization that you're just like kids can do stuff you can't do. So there's that on the performance side. And then there's like uh, your contracts are getting less, you know, or you're not getting as many photos in the magazine or the video parts aren't there or just it's just uh, your results aren't there, whatever it is that you're doing. They're just not as as high as they were, and so for me, well, I think, let me let me interrupt yeah. you real quick. You're saying it's obvious. It was obvious to you. It's not obvious to a lot of surfers. I was on. I'm not going to say who, but I was on somebody's Instagram page last week, and they still had the word pro surfer listed in their bio line. And it's like <laughs> I don't think they've made a dime off surfing in ten years. There's a lot of people that are still holding on to the dream, you know. So you're totally uh, right. There, yeah. There's it's, a lot it's of people milking observation it. on your, on your behalf. Oh, thanks. And I, I guess that's the point I was going to get to is like, I was always a realist about, and not just that, but I think I am in general, that's just the kind, kind of my nature. And, um, but I will say like, and, and you're totally right. I mean, I have a, I have a bunch of friends that just milked it and milked it and milked mm -hmm. it. And, and looking back, if you think about like the charmed life that is being a pro surfer, regardless of what level you're at, um, you're still surfing every day. And it's like, really, it, it's so to, to look back and say, like, oh, those guys blew it, and they were milking it. I don't necessarily have that, that um, interpretation anymore. Because I think, like more power to them, you know, yeah, you, they might be blind, or, or, or blinded a little bit or, or living in denial, but more power, like, hey, I understand the different the 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 reality and the shift from that world to like the quote real world it can be a shock for me i just i i definitely had a hard period like i definitely it wasn't a graceful transition to be honest i, I definitely and i think the the main thing i attribute that to is sort of an identity crisis okay uh, um even though I, I had the capacity to look beyond, like I definitely did for sure. I think just my nature was that way. So thankfully I had that, but I still had only ever thought about surfing or 
that as a profession. I mean, I turned pro out of high school. It wasn't like, a, um, you know, I loved other things, but that was my passion. Right. So it, it was, it was such a one track mind. And then as you start going, as I described that sort of downturn on the other side of things and you start to go, okay, there's less money coming in. There's less, 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 less. Um, yeah, of course I was forced to kind of think of new things, but at the same time, I was also wrapped in this idea of like John Rose, the pro surfer, that's who I was. And what I've come to realize now is like, it's not John Rose waves for water. It's not John Rose, the pro surfer. It's just John Rose. That's who I am. That's who I was born to be sort of. And all these other things, these other chapters are enhancements of that person. Not the okay. thing that, not the thing that defines you. So that's, that's been my journey. Like I've, I've come to that conclusion and I understand now that there's a lot of chapters and there's not one thing that, that has to define you, but it wasn't so smooth as you say it was, you know, I was, kind, I was in a marriage that was kind of failing. I didn't have the money I once had. I had no idea what I was going to do next at the same time. Like I said, maybe I just was lucky in the sense that I had, um, I felt pretty resourceful as a person, kind of a survivalist, no matter what. Yeah. Um, and I would always provide, but I just took to, the, the feeling of losing your passion, the thing that, that makes you the most happy and not losing it. Like, of course I could always go surf, but the feeling of like potentially not doing that as a, as a profession, it, it, it goes dark. You, you get dark. And I think a lot of our friends that a lot of people we've been talking about, either guys who milk it or guys who don't milk it and just have like a really bumpy transition or don't transition at all and just completely crash and burn. Um, those, like, I get it. I, I, I understand. Well, I think, so kind of the bigger question that I was leading towards is for me personally, not being a professional surfer, but just being a recreational surfer, surfing has become less fulfilling than it originally was. And, um, it's more fulfilling in certain ways as a reprieve from my real life, but it's less fulfilling as just a thing itself. So when I was young, it could be the only thing in my life because it provided enough fulfillment. But as you mature, I think you need more inputs in your life and you need relationships and you get gratification out of professional pursuits and that sort of thing. So part of my question to you was just, did it become less fulfilling, but also in kind of risk, light of what we're talking about with other pros not transitioning out is that's all they know. And that's, they didn't invest in any other things in their life. So they don't necessarily have any interests outside of surfing, but they also don't have any skill set outside of surfing. So as that income starts going away, they're clinging on to the surf thing because they need, that's the only income they know, but it, it's innately just less fulfilling for them probably as well, but they have to keep doing it. So I think that's where a lot of that crux comes in but i don't want to put words in your mouth i don't know if surfing's become less fulfilling for you or not but no you you hit the nail on the head and i think when you when you see those those certain individuals as i said crash and burn that's because it's a combination of all the things you just said so that's because yeah. it is less fulfilling that's the the main thing it's less fulfilling so they're not getting that same fire out of it but they don't, they also right. don't have anything else to do. They also don't have any skill sets. And so if you, if you're just continuing to do something that's actually not fulfilling anymore in the same way, then you're going to turn to other sure. things, potentially drugs, you know, like, like that's where the crash and burn comes in. 
Um, and it's just, it, it's all about stimulation, I guess, really. And, and, um, passion, fire, all those things for, and for me, like surfing has become less fulfilling, not surfing big waves and, or, or, or good waves. I mean that I still, you know, basically what it comes down to is like, I am still at a place in my life where I want to get after it, whatever I'm doing, I'm not resigned. Like I, 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 it, I love being a beginner at things, especially at 42 years old. Like, I think it's the coolest thing. I think it's the, literally the fountain of youth and the key to a successful, happy life is have is is constantly being in that beginner's mind. Um, because that learning curve when you're beginning something is really steep. And that's where it's exciting oh. and super fulfilling. So for me, for me, I really, really, I mean, I live in Truckee. I, I don't even live at the ocean anymore. I live uh, up at Lake Tahoe. And that's because... All of the other things that are real that I'm really passionate about that give me so much fulfillment. So motorcycles, climbing, uh, snowboarding, you know, uh, mountain biking, all that kind of stuff. Just basically being in nature, hiking, um, all that stuff is at my fingertips up here. So it's the same equivalent of like living on the North Shore and being super geeked up about surfing. Like it's right. You can do it all day long, and it's right there. I don't have to like travel in my car, put my rack on, and like you know, I can go out of my house on my dirt bike and go to wow. Oregon on dirt roads if I want to and dirt, dirt trails. So that kind of stuff um, is how I've found fulfillment. Again, of course I have fulfillment with my job too and all that kind of stuff, but I'm just talking about that same kind of feeling that pure stoke feeling that you had with surfing. Um, I, if you can parlay that into, into other things and be the kook, like being kooks, the best thing you could possibly be, in my opinion, uh, is because it's the funnest time period. It's the same as a startup in a business. You'll never, ever have that time period again. You'll, it'll either become very successful or it'll fail, but that yeah, beginning is really exciting. And so that, yeah, so that's how all those sports are for me. I mean, I, I not, not saying, and you know, some of them I've been doing now for, for a decade or two, but, um, so I'm not at that same beginning stage, but like, I recently just really picked up mountain biking and I, yeah, I did it when I was a kid, you know, here and there, but I'm talking yeah. about like fully into it and I'm like so geeked up on it. And so I think that with surfing, um, it's, I, I don't get the fulfillment. Like if I go down to Orange County and visit friends and stuff and I go out and surf waist high waves, like I just don't like, I feel good when I get out of the water because the salt water and that, that feeling yep. you get, but that's it. Like I have, I have zero desire to do that. It doesn't, it doesn't give me the the yeah. fix that I'm looking for, and that's what what I was saying is like I really I'm really in a place where I still want to push it. I want to like get after it. I want to push my. I want to be scared. I want to push my limits. I want to test my abilities. I'm still in that place. I'm sure I will mellow out later on, but that's where I'm at. And surfing, unless you're surfing big barreling waves, it's funny though. Doesn't do that. I for me. bet that all of those other things that those other activities that you just described actually inform your surfing. Like if you were surfing every day and surfing waist high waves, you wouldn't be a better surfer, but doing all of these other things. And then yeah. once you're in big barreling waves, you'll actually be probably a better surfer for some reason, you know, like all of those still provide kind of information no. for surfing. Well, and that coordination too, you know, just straight up, straight up body coordination and hand eye everything. And I mean, it's funny you say that because I, I surf when I surf now it's at ocean beach because it's three hour drive to the bay. 
And that's like my spot. And I still surf quite often. I just look at swells and it's it's quick strike and it's and and that's a that wave will just always hand hand you your ass. Like that thing will just you know beat you and it's just like um and and make you work for it and it's funny because i don't know if it's because i'm living at altitude um and i'm doing all those things and like you said the coordination all that stuff like i'm i'm finding i'm just like after three months rocking up and surfing and feeling good yeah i think about it's kelly slater is somebody who's a great reference point for that conversation because he's always been interested in a lot of things outside of surfing like he's just an an yeah. interested human being. And I feel like that makes his surfing competitive and super competitive, <laughs> but it, that all makes his surfing so much more interesting than maybe like an Adriana de Souza who just focuses on surfing all the time. And same thing with John, John, who's like into sailing and all of these other things. Yeah. His surfing is more interesting, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. No, no, you're absolutely right. And I've, and I've definitely had friends where they're like, dude, you, you, like, I can't tell you haven't surfed in three months. Like, you know, of course I'm not, I'm not pushing the levels where I was before, you know, you kind of, I think you flatline a little bit, like you can be as good as you're going to be once you've kind of peaked. True. You're not yeah. going to go you're, unless you're Kelly and you're like learning five forties at 40 years old. Right. Um, but, but I mean, for, for me, it's like, I know this, as long as I'm at this certain level that when I go out, I can get like, I can always try and get one of the best waves and I can perform on it. Like that, that's that's all i really need especially when it's good and i can do that yep. like and that's 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 really that's enough for me good you know this is all great information i'm a couple years behind you but confronting a lot of these issues so i like having this guidance this is helpful um but let's go back beginner's to, mind okay perfect and i actually that resonates with me so much because i've been i've had a couple of uh businesses and things and it's always the most fun at the beginning i've known that about myself but i never really put it into words the way that you did but the growth phase is what's fun and then once it kind of stagnates it's i don't know i'm on to something else you know so yeah it's funny i mean a lot of people um a lot of people forget to stop and s smell the roses during that time like yeah and including myself like you know you you're you're so ambitious and you want this thing to grow and you want this stuff but the reality is like enjoy the chaos yeah enjoy the uncertainty enjoy the unpredictability enjoy all of the things that make it really exciting because once you become and you fight so during that time you fight so hard to become established at whatever it is that you're doing and then once you're established it's a totally different relationship yeah no that that initial stuff is when you feel alive, you know? Absolutely. That's why there's like serial entrepreneurs. Yeah, totally. You know, because they're well, addicted let, to that. Let's get back to um, transitioning out of pro surfing and into waves for water. Were you, when you were traveling, going to these remote places, were you carrying water filters with you? Like how did that all start? No, I was not. Um, I, I, and it wasn't as much as like, I, I would like to, take your version of the story and think that I was, I was like, so I had so much foresight and just was like, Oh yeah, this is going to, what I'm going to do. I'm going to work on this on the side. That's not really true. I was still trying to figure out who I was like, like who I really was at my core without surfing. Um, but my dad, um, who I call kind of just like a, a master solutionist, <laughs> he's just like such a good problem solver, um, by nature. And he, he's a carpenter and he, became passionate about the global water crisis, specifically around access to water, not necessarily 
potable water, but just two water. So like seeing women in Africa that had to walk three miles just to their water source, just to collect water. He was like, well, that, that seems crazy. Like, why don't they just catch rainwater? You know? So he started thinking in like rainwater harvesting thoughts and, um, saved money on his own and went over to Africa and helped a couple villages. So like he, that's where not only the inspiration came from, but I can't even say I was like, so inspired, like, Oh my God, that's what I'm going to do. But it put it on my radar, you know, cause at that time when he went to Africa, I was still a pro surfer. So okay. I, I, I still was focused on me. Um, but it definitely put it on my radar. And then as I was transitioning out and figuring out, okay, what's the next chapter going to be? Um, I, I did think, okay, you know, it'll be cool to do that. It would be cool to do this, not as a job though. It still was not, I, I still didn't even have enough vision around it to like make it a career. I had no intention of making it a career. I had um, every intention of it being a fun pet project that I could, that was totally genuine in its intent to help, but also totally genuine in its intent for it to be an excuse for me to go to Indonesia and surf twice a year. So yeah. it's not, it wasn't supposed to be my job. So yeah, why not have this cool thing? Whatever, I, whatever is my next job, right. right? Why not have this cool side project that's always there that does good for the world and gives me a legitimate excuse to go back to Indonesia every year. Cause I wanted to make sure I could go still go back to some of these places that I wasn't going to be going to as much as I did during my surf career. Right. So that was the initial inception. It wasn't like um, some big vision. And I that's another thing I really, I had this conversation the other day with somebody, uh, an entrepreneur, a friend of mine. And, and um, that's, that's one of the things that I really think is important as well when you're starting out is that it's okay not to have a big vision. It's actually in some cases better because when anybody asks you, in my opinion, when they're like, what's your five-year plan? And somebody gives them like some really sharp answer around that. I think it's kind of bullshit. Yeah, uh, because that's just a that's just a in my opinion, you're just playing a game because yeah. there's no way to under, I mean, you can have an ultimate goal like, OK, I want to give three million people access to clean water like that's 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 legit like that can be a goal. But to, to sit here and lay out some business plan for you. Um, even the best who come from Wharton or something like that, who come with the tightest, coolest plan, it's still, it still always changes. You almost, and, you, you almost need the plan just to have like a framework, but you immediately throw out the plan, you know? Yeah. And that's why I don't think you, sh you like, I, I don't think people should be so stressed about saying their plans definitively or these, this grand vision or knowing what it is. Cause that's part of the journey is learning what it is and what it's yeah. going to become. So I didn't have some big vision. I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't even a 501 C three when I started, I, I just was like, Oh, this will be fun. Be right. a cool project for some of my friends and I, who I know care about the world and want to just go back to some of these places we've been to before. And finally, maybe for once get back a little bit instead of just take. Well, you know, it's funny if you did lay out that vision and say, I want to solve the world water crisis, it sounds way too daunting to even tackle. But if you say, I'm just going to go to Indonesia twice a year and solve the problem for these villages, a couple of villages, that sounds doable. Absolutely. And I think it's so, you just, what you just said is exactly what I think is the key to good problem solving because people, I do so much disaster relief um, in addition to our 
our long-term sort of development programming that we do around the world and the disaster stuff you're either like in my opinion you're you're there's two sides of the coin and and people are literally on one side or the other you're either somebody that knows that gets overwhelmed by the magnitude of the problem Mm -hmm. and and isn't efficient or people that are hyper focused on the next problem right in front of them not the overarching big big problem but like the what's the roadblock directly in front of you and you're hyper focused on that and you take that you solve that and then you go to the next one and it's not rocket science and it's so funny because because like to me that makes perfect sense that's that's who i am that's who i've always been and i think maybe that's why i'm efficient in those situations but um it, you'd be you'd be surprised like how many people and it doesn't matter how many what even what the percentages are but there's a huge percentage of the population of the world that is completely overwhelmed and can't grasp that like step-by-step problem solving as opposed to just being totally overwhelmed and then crash and burn implosion <laughs> right totally so what what was the first trip that you did with this intention um, it was uh, Indonesia. It was to the Mentwise, and um, it was it was a crazy thing because I had the idea for the organization. I did. I had a name. I said, "Okay, waves for water. That'd be cool." And then um, I think I incorporated it. I didn't like s- submit for a five hundred one c three. I just like set it up, kind of. Um, I didn't. I wasn't going to follow the exact path as my dad because um, what interested me more was. Um, what interested me more was going back to some of the villages that I had already been to. And I had, I already knew from those experiences what they needed and what they needed more. So they had access to water. It just wasn't clean. So I started doing research and going, okay, well, um, there's technology out there that exists that really, that's really good. I mean, I'm an outdoorsman and backpacker and like I have, I've had filters that work, you know, maybe, it's not the pump filter that's made for one person, but maybe there's some other ones out there. And I just started doing total non-expert research, you know, just kind of layman style. And I found some filters that would be pretty good application and produce a lot more water. It can be more community used. Um, I bought them with my own money. I think I bought 10 filters for like a couple hundred bucks or a hundred bucks. They were $20 each. Uh, no, yeah. Yeah, I think they're around 20, something like that, 200 bucks. And um, I said, okay, I'm going to go over. And it was a bad time to go over there. It was, it was. Uh, I mean, not necessarily because of the place, but just where I was in my life. I didn't have really my finances in order. That's being, that's putting it lightly. Um, I ended up using the bill money that I had saved for the next month's bills for this trip and didn't tell my wife. Um, because I, which sounds like such a horrible, I mean, it's like, it it is a very irresponsible, (laughs) but I, I, my mindset, I was like, oh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to get home with 10 days left before those bills are due and I'll figure it out. I'll sell some (laughs) shit or something, you know? So like, cause I was at such a funky place in my life with a lot of different things. I, I, my buddy, uh, Jordan Tapas asked me, he said, Hey, uh, there's a spot open that just opened on our trip. The guy who paid his deposit isn't going to get his deposit back. So your trip will be a thousand dollars less. Can you pull it? And I just said, yes. Yeah. Even though it was totally the wrong thing to do, but it's such an important part of the story because if I didn't say yes to that, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you about this. Yeah. Um, and it was such a, 
it ended up being this divine kind of intervention moment thing because it was I, I, the way I say it is like I had the intention already there. I put the intention into the universe by starting it, having the idea, etc. Then taking the initiative, going on this trip, just like full cowboying it, you know, with the funds and everything like that, just going. And I was going to go surf with them for, for like two weeks on the boat. And then when, when everyone came in, they were going to go home. I was going to go to another island I'd been to before, implement these filters, call it waste for water, call it a day. But before I was able to get there, we were caught in big in a big earthquake. And so the, it was a 2009 quake that hit Padang and we were in it. And so I just became, I never ended up going to that other island. I, I just sort of became a first responder by accident because I was just there. And that experience of like, talk about problem solving, you know, in super heavy situation with like sort of death and destruction all around you and being confronted with things you've never seen before, never thought you would see and being tested in uh, so many, so many different ways. And then coming out the other end of it after 30 hours on the ground, like volunteering and working in, towards this goal of, of, of implementing these 10 systems in, uh, in around the area to, um, you know, a lot of the victims, um, that just changed my life. I mean, I mean, it completely changed my life. I just said, okay, well, if I, I mean, I guess on some level, I, maybe I feel like I'm a little bit thick headed sometimes uh, or stubborn. And, um, that was a, that was the huge punch from the universe that said, okay, are you listening? Like you had your intention and we just validated it. Or I just validated whoever, whatever you believe, if you're religious, you're not religious, whatever, but it was something bigger than me. Um, and I'm not traditionally religious, but I do believe there's bigger hands at play in some capacity. And this was a moment where that was shown to me. Like I put the intention out into the universe. All of a sudden the universe came back and validated it with this experience that was so clear cut that I just, I mean, I came home with a clear cut vision of what I was going to do next. And that was you know, change my life completely, like get divorced, like change everything and raise as much money as I could to get as many more of those filters and go straight back to Indonesia, which I did in a month. Holy cow. Uh, and that was, and it was, that was on my way. You know, that, that was just, that, that was the validation. It was just, you know, I, I when I was in Padang implementing those 10 filters, it was, it was like, uh, afterwards I realized that they helped thousands of people. And I, and I was like, I barely tried. This was just like a, fun little oh yeah cool it'll be cool to do what if i tried right and that's where and, it all kind of came from and what did that one month look like i mean uh, did you put a business plan in place how did you fund it were you at with you with hurley at the time no, 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 no. okay so hurley got involved later later yeah hurley got involved okay. later I, I i rode for quicksilver my entire career um, that's right that's right yeah um and then i i had just left them um probably a year or like less than a year prior to this. Um, I, I was not really, um, really associated with anybody and I wasn't trying to be, you know, I was, right. I was totally just on, on my next path. Um, and then I, um, no, I didn't, I didn't have a 501c3, so nobody could really get don't, uh, tax write-offs for donations, but I did just, I, I think I held a little event. I basically just hit up friends and family and okay. said, Hey, Hey, who, Cause it wasn't about a big vision. It, 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 I had a clear vision of what I wanted to do next, which was get back to Indonesia as soon as possible with as many filters as possible. That was all I, I needed to do. 
so I, that in hindsight looks really noble and it makes perfect sense, but I could imagine maybe your dad or the people closest to you at the time thinking you've lost your mind. Like you come back from a surf trip and you're going to get divorced and you're going to go live this entirely different life without any real structure to it or financial backing or any of that. Was there any apprehension from anybody around you or did they see it as clearly as you saw it? They saw it as clearly as me because I was, I was incredibly convincing. Okay. So it was because it wasn't exactly the way you say it, because the, the reality is people knew I was unhappy before that. Got it. So it wasn't like all of a sudden, whoa. And, and secondly, they saw, I mean, it, it was crazy. What happened um, in Sumatra was very crazy. And we, it, it, it got back to the local news in Southern California. I think it was like KTLA or KCAL 11 or one of those that like reported local pro surfer, John Rose presumed dead oh, on the wow. news because we, we went, when a big earthquake happens in an area that the U S embassies do a cataloging of all the citizens, the U S citizens that are abroad in that country, in that place by, you know, when you give your passport to hotels, yeah. that's how they do it. They get the information from the hotels. And so they, they, they do a census on who's where and somehow that, cause we had a hotel book, but we never checked in, but to get that hotel, you provide your passports ahead of time. Yep. So we had a hotel and that hotel was compromised in the quake. So um, we never checked in. We just never showed up because we hit rough seas and we got in late. We just stayed on the boat that night. So there was all these things. And somehow that information how, through whoever reporter was doing reporting was able to like find that information and then took because now I know how the news works, if you want to call it news, but um, the entertainment that we call news. Um, they, if, if, if five news channels are covering a disaster, they all want their own thread. They all want their own thing to make their story a little different. And somehow someone in this place, uh, whether it was, I think channel 11 or it was KTLA, but they, they came across me and my name, whatever. And because I was a local pro from Southern California and it was just kind of that, that was their thread. That was the, the story they wanted to go with. Right. And it, and so they went with that. And so a lot of p friends and family saw that before they heard from me. Yeah. Um, you know, my, and it, it, you know, so, so when I came home, it was, it was clear. Everybody knew that I went through something really, really intense. And I also was so focused and so um, clear when you, when you're in the presence of somebody who's incredibly clear about who they are and what they're doing, it's contagious. Yeah. It's super contagious. So I hadn't felt that clear since I was probably like 13 when I decided I want to be a pro surfer. Like, you know, it was just like that, yeah. that determination and focus and vision. And, and it was nothing else is going to stand in my way. And it wasn't that I want to now start this organization. It was, I didn't care about what the big picture was. I didn't care about, I was so impacted by that experience that I wanted to get back over there and help I didn't care what the, what where I was going to be in six months. I'll figure that out. But I did so clearly understand where I wanted to be in the next month, and mm. I wanted to be back on the ground doing what I was doing before, but with like all my muscle. And that's all it really takes. Because, and I think that anybody will get behind that because there's no 
so what? Six months. So I come home from that and then I'm struggling and I got to figure out and pick up the pieces. Fine. Cross that bridge then. Yeah. But right now, this is a righteous path. Like this is a like almost everybody, actually everybody got behind. Everybody was like, fuck yeah, dude, go get it. <laughs> and I remember that earthquake was, I mean, it was a big deal. That was hugely was huge. devastating. Um, huge. So, Thousands so, of people died. So were you there for six months on that second trip? No, I, I went for about a month. Okay. Um, and basically just till I ran out of money and filters, you know, that it, I, I brought about 300, I would raise enough money to bring about 300 filters. So went back, um, and then came back around. So that was October of 09 was the first was when it happened, the end of October. Um, then I went back in December, right around December or late November, um, came back before Christmas, um, Hung, like didn't have a home was just just floating a little bit went to hawaii early january to to go surf just to like decompress i had just been in my whole life had changed and i also had just was still trying to process what the, what i had just been through in indonesia for the last couple months um and the reality of of all that kind of stuff that you that you've seen and and experienced um I was staying with Ross Williams, a dear friend of mine, and um, we surfed, I think it was January 10th, 2010. No, sorry, the 12th. Yeah, it was like 11th or the 12th or the 13th. Um, and I know this date for a reason <laughs> because we were we surfed um, this magical, still one of the best days of my entire life, massive Makaha. It was like a eddy type swell, but it was super west. And we went over there and it was just... I mean, it was, he actually let me ride his, I don't know if you remember the, the big red John Carper board that he won the Eddie or, or he, he did really well on the Eddie on one year. It was like a famous big wave board that he had. So it was just such a magical deal. I was on this epic board and we surfed like beautiful, big Makaha, surfed for like five hours, still one of, to this day, one of the best. And I think he says this too, is one of the best big wave sessions of my life. Um, and we were back on the couch and we're just like, you know, I'm decompressing everything, looking at the news and um, the news flash comes on and Haiti earthquake just happened that night. And I didn't have any idea of like, oh, well, that's happening now. I should do that. I just, it, it I had more attention around it because I was just coming out of a disaster zone. And um, I got a call that night, I believe. It was like only hours or, or potentially the next morning. I can't remember the exact sequence from somebody who was putting together Somebody who had seen, because there was a lot of news stories that came out on my Sumatra thing because it was kind of a miraculous situation that I was there and was able to help. And I was, you know, um, somebody had seen that that piece and they were putting together an, a relief team for Haiti that was going to provide medical food, water, not necessarily in that order, but those three things. And they, they just remembered my story, remembered, and they were putting it together. They were not traditional aid people or relief people, but they just were passionate about helping and they had access to money. And they said, Hey, is what you did in Indonesia viable for Haiti? And I said, yeah, absolutely. Even though I didn't know for sure, but I, I had a good idea that, yeah, these two situations will probably be similar. Um, they said, great. Do you want to go tomorrow? And I said, sure. I don't have a job. I don't have family. I don't have kids. I don't have home. I don't have really anything, any expenses or anything. I'm just yes, I'll go. And so I jumped on a chartered flight with them 
and thought I was and thought I was going to go for two weeks and stayed for two years. Wow, that's amazing. Um, what was it like on the ground in Haiti, and how similar or different was it to your previous experience? I mean, I would imagine you're learning on the fly. There's got to be a tremendous learning curve there. Oh, yeah, I mean, you're just at hyper hyper speed. You're learning. Uh, being confronted with with situations where you have to make decisions that actually impact people's lives, not just like you think they are, but it, it really, and you're like, that's a lot of pressure. Yeah. Um, but what I realized more than anything, and I, I, I got this crash course in aid work, development work, uh, foreign policy. I mean, just you name it, anything to do with like international policies, response, aid, um, medicine. I mean, just a, a number of different things because it was a melting pot is a very, very small area that got hit that was heavily populated. Okay. So, so because of the proximity, you know, I was, you're just rubbing shoulders with the heads of UNICEF, whether they like it or not, you just are, it's just, yeah. everything's mashed together. And I've done 25 disasters since then. And, um, they're not all like that. You know, some are really okay. spread out. This this was just, and the severity of it all, how much death there was. Um, you know, I was just seeing things that you could not even imagine. I thought Indonesia was bad. This was like 500 times worse. And because it was such a melting pot and it became the epicenter of the aid and sort of disaster relief world for a long time, um, it couldn't have been a better proving ground and training ground for me. I mean, it just became, so everything that waves for water is today was built during that time. Okay. So it's almost like, um, if you want to put it in these terms, it's like Indonesia, the, the earthquake was like the conception or, or, or when the baby was conceived and Haiti was the birth. Yeah. That's really the way it is because even, even though I was working in Indonesia, it was just like the, whoa, you're pregnant or something, you know, that kind of yeah. thing. And yeah. When the baby comes is when it starts. And that's really the parallel, I think, that's that's accurate for Waves for Water. And it was just seeing, seeing the best of the best and the worst of the worst. I guess, yeah, I mean, there's probably, like with the baby analogy, there's no amount of preparation that could prepare you for what you're going to see in a disaster relief situation. But your kind of original concept was solving the world water crisis. It wasn't so much to do with disaster relief. So no. disaster relief comes with all of this additional emotional baggage uh, or just consequence. How do you even do that? How do you deal with that? I mean, maybe there's probably people who aren't equipped to deal with that level of death and trauma. What was that like for you? Oh, I mean, a hundred percent. You, you literally either can handle it or you can't. And it doesn't mean you're any less of a person. If you no. can't, you're actually way better off if you can't. Um, but every single disaster uh, career disaster response person um, is cut the same way. Like, like, and I'm one of those people I, I have, and I didn't know that I was one of those people until I got pushed into these situations and confronted with this stuff. Then I learned, so I was learning at a hyperspeed, absorbing information and learning the craft of it all. 
but I was also learning at a hyperspeed about myself, which things I didn't know, skill sets I had. And, and basically what it comes down to in the simplest way to describe it is that people that are good at, let's say disaster relief is one of them, but let's just say um, high intensity situations. Yeah. Um, and a lot of a lot of elite athletes are that way. So what, what it comes down to is that you're able to compartmentalize emotions. Mm. Now, now, as a man, we're already built that way more so like we're we're just naturally in that way. But this is on a hyper level. So this mm. is like being able to see a dead child on the ground and be able to say, yep, OK, that sucks, but I'm going to push it over here and get back to my task at hand because that's more that's the greater good that's more important if i can get that done then it helps this this and this which actually helps the kids parents <laughs> like you know it, it's a roundabout yeah. way of dealing with the kid whereas the other type of people who can't compartmentalize on that level are automatically overwhelmed and consumed by what's in front of them and the kid on the ground totally understandably so yeah. but they break down and then there's just inefficiencies. Right. And, and so it really just comes down to efficiencies and inefficiencies. And so I, people like me are efficient in those situations because you're able to just push that stuff to the side and it's super task oriented, you know, problem solving mindset and you get it done and then you get it done. Now there's a total, um, not, not, I don't even want to say downside, but there's a, there's a, there's repercussions for being that way. I mean, massive repercussions, because if you go too far, then you don't feel anything and you right. come home and you, because you haven't processed what you've seen, you just have a really good ability to put it and put it on ice for a little while. But if you don't know how to go back there and take it out of the fridge and deal with it, then it's going to live there and eventually bring you down in some other way and, and sort of surface, you know, in a, not healthy way. How do you manage it personally? You have, to, well, you have to have tools and you have to do work. So like okay. I, like you, whether you have to see somebody or you go do EMDR or you do, I mean, there's a bunch of, there's a bunch of, it's post-traumatic stress disorder. It's, it, it is PTSD is what is going through those things and compartmentalizing on that level. If you don't compartmentalize and you go through those things, then you're not good in in the moment you, you you can't like handle it in the moment but you've you've let it go you've processed it yeah so that's that's the the upside to that and so but soldiers um people who who can't can't afford to break down in that moment and have to compartmentalize on that level that's why they're the ones with ptsd right because you come home and you still have this stuff inside you and you need to pull it out. And I had, I definitely hit a point probably five, four years into it where I, I needed to address some serious stuff that was inside locked in there. And I didn't necessarily, like I'm conscious enough to know that there was an issue and, but I didn't know how to approach it or how to like tackle it at all. And so I, finally hit this point. I remember I was in New York City. I was just in Afghanistan working with the US military um, during the active, like one of the most kinetic fighting zones in Afghanistan, the Kunar Valley, um, during the peak of the war um, in 2011, 2012, I think, and um, came, came back from my stint over there, flew 
in a time capsule that you know an airplane like flew less than 24 hours and was standing on the corner of prince and broadway in new york city and looking at all these people and just going like what the hell is going on like who basically feeling so not grounded and so um detached from reality that i didn't feel like i was even participating in what i was seeing i I walked up to a woman, a random person on the street, one of the thousands of people walking on the street, and I stopped her and I said, can you see me? Because I didn't, yeah, and, 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 I, and of course that freaked her out, but yeah, um, but that's literally, that was like a, one of the points where I realized like, okay, this is, I wasn't like super down and out and like, oh my God, it was just more like, um, okay, I'm not, I'm, I'm not grounded. I'm not in this reality. Yeah. And, and I'm not in that reality either. I'm not, I'm not back in Afghanistan. I'm just, I'm like floating somewhere. Just like, disoriented. Am I disoriented. I'm not part, you know, I, what, who am I? Like, if, am I part of this world? Am I part of that world? I guess maybe an astronaut would, would feel, could feel that way, right? You've experienced something that very few people have experienced, but then you're, then you're back home with your wife and kids and you're like, Hey, I mean, I had another experience where I was at dinner um, in New York, uh, around that time. And I, I don't ever like to say like, if the conversation comes up of like, uh, or whatever the dinner table conversation is, I'm never the one to be like, yeah, I just got back from Afghanistan. You know, mm -hmm. it's just not my thing. Um, but it did come around to me and somebody was like, Oh, they knew what I did. And they're like, where, where did you, where was your last trip? And I'm like, actually it was, yeah, it was Afghanistan. And, um, and their response was like, Oh, neat. Um, Hey, Bill, did you hear they're opening a Trader Joe's down the street? And they're like, amazing. Like, because it was wow. so, it was so, it's so huge for somebody to even process and not even, um, it's, it's alien, right? To, totally. to, to them, to them, they're like, Afghanistan just went right over their head and couldn't relate whatsoever. And then all of a sudden the mention of a new Trader Joe's was like huge news. Mm -hmm. And, um, that was another moment where I just, it dawned on me and I just said, look, I don't judge anybody for any of this. Like if anything, I'm kind of judging myself for feeling even more alienated and I need to come to terms with that. And so that's going to be through a process of, of work that needs to be done. And I didn't know what to do, but I started to ask around and I went and saw somebody that helped a PTSD sort of specialist that really helped me, um, develop some tools. I did a bunch of things. Um, so now I have a better, I'm still that same way with compartmentalization, but I don't know if I could ever not be, but, um, it's, I can handle, I, I can, I can get that stuff and pull it out of me, um, at a certain point in time. Do you have advice? Just, I'm curious for listeners, uh, who might be struggling with something similar, what therapy works for you? You mentioned EMDR. Is that's, that effective? that's really effective. Um, the, the, the number one thing for me, and I think you'll, I mean, you hear a lot of the big wave guys talk about this, um, all the soldiers, I mean, we have a military veteran division for waves of water called clean water core. Um, we've done a lot of work with the military over the years, but also being around them and just, um, so much and so intimately that, um, I've learned a lot from them and like talk to them about stuff. And, and I, and I've always been like, Hey, what do you guys do? Like, what is the seal? What is the seal doing while he's in in the chopper on the way to get bin laden like how does he stay calm 
what is it? And, and I dug into that because I was like, that's, I mean, that's an extreme situation that I'll pro that I, I won't ever experience yeah. that, that level, but why not use that as the example? Yeah. <laughs> that's totally. the peak. And so, um, the response almost unanimously was, uh, breathing. So, so, but intentional breathing. So like what I, what I like to do is box breathing, which is what a lot of those guys, a lot of the seals do. And, um, Box breathing is just kind of like a pranayama style breathing where um, it's called box breathing because a box has four sides. So, so it's, it's like, um, it's all about the hold that you do. So if you do like a six second inhale and then an eight second hold, and then a six second exhale and a 10 second hold. Okay. And then you just repeat that. It's like a box, right? You just repeat that and I, I can actually send you the um first video that i it was a ex seal that put this program together for other soldiers and stuff from people who wanted to um become use it as a tool to become calm in heavy situations so for me it's not necessarily like i'm in the chopper on the way to bin laden or like i'm in the field and there's the dead child on the on the ground i'm sure maybe in some cases i would use that during those times or i will but for more for me, it's, it's like after I'm home yeah. and I, I do it as a practice. So if I do that breathing for 10 minutes every morning and, and, and then a meditation on top of it for another 10 minutes every morning, and then I do like all my, make sure that I'm physical. I have to be physical. I have to get that blood pumping, um, whatever sport I'm doing, then I'm good. Like that's, that's, that's the key for me. And those are really simple. I just said it to you in two minutes. Um, now, not everybody, that won't be enough for everybody. That's just sort of where I've ended up now. Um, yeah. Some people need greater, you know, greater um, work to be done. But I like that it is, you already have all the tools. It's not like you need to go out and buy a bunch of equipment or download some expensive software. It's you have it all. It's pretty simple. You can get it all done, even with a physical exercise in probably an hour. And then you're able to do your day. Oh, then I'm grounded. Yeah, I'm like really grounded. I'm I'm not phased by things. The stresses Good. and pressure, the stresses and pressure that come with your just daily life, and on top of it, running a global organization where I don't have nine to five. It's twenty four hours a day, seven days a week, because it's always work somewhere. Um, being able to to manage that and not be consumed by the stress that only happens because of those tools. Yeah. Otherwise, I, and I, I'm only at this place now. I mean, this is no, 10 I years in, in. I was, you know, I had to go through a series of really big peaks and more importantly, valleys that got me to figure out my program. And you know what? I did have to also go, go seek help from a professional at one point too. So it wasn't that those, like those tools I, I, I use now is like, that's the maintenance and that really keeps me good. But they wouldn't have worked just those alone when I needed to go see somebody who could help shine light on, on the bigger challenges that I was facing. Um, that's just the reality. That's just me. I mean, everyone's different. There's so many mental health, uh, challenges out there, especially right now. And there's a number of things at work. Um, for me, this is kind of my program. Well, in addition to the learning that you're talking about along the way, I mean, you are building a global, <laughs> a global uh, nonprofit organization, which is very different than just 
going to these places and installing filters. I mean, this comes with a whole back end of accounting, staffing, funding, like all of that. So tell me a little bit about that process. Um, I mean, how are you able to develop relationships with the United Nations, the US military, then PayPal, then BMW? How did you pull all that stuff off? Tell me about that process. Yeah, I mean, I guess just trial and error. But um, again, I think it goes back to being when you're in the presence of somebody who is true, who is in there 100% in their truth, it's contagious. So it's less about you, you know, you see it in the surf industry a lot with um, the opposite of that. So like um, a new company comes out, they have their funding and they put it all into marketing. But the product isn't good. Right. So so it's 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 like, what are you what are you providing? Are you able to stand super firmly on that? And then I, I believe if you are, then everything else comes. So I didn't like the hype up front is the worst thing you could possibly do to yourself totally and, and sell yourself and so, so i didn't do any of that to be honest i just went to work every day i just was like okay i'm gonna go to haiti now i'm in haiti for two years when i was in haiti that's when so and so you know all, i'm just rubbing shoulders with the un people and i, I like i made all of those crazy contacts during that time and then they were like look you're doing great work you know i didn't i didn't go pitch anybody it was just every single day i was working i got up every single day i had really good follow through. I also believe that like that one of the keys to success, at least in terms of business is follow through, like do what you say you're going to do. If you yeah. just simply do what you say you're going to do every single day, you'll be successful um, because so many people don't. Yep. You don't even have to be that smart of a right. person because you can be, you can make up for it with um, accountability, follow through, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, you, you built this great credibility for being somebody that can be um, counted on. And so there's that like coupled with hopefully you do have a good idea also. And if you're really making like I just went out and worked and yes, then it was. But I also was in a unique situation. I didn't have an overhead. I didn't have staff in the beginning. I didn't have family. I didn't have anything really. I could just be totally fluid. Right. And that made made it easier for me to just make these like pretty good incremental jumps um and next thing he knows the un saying hey our friend or one of our staff who worked with you in haiti said you're doing really good work we want to learn more and then i put together a proposal and of course learning you know my proposals back then compared to what they are now are totally different yep. so you just learn you go in terms of corporate corporate sponsorships that that also just happened kind of organically you know i mean hurley was um I rode for Billabong when I was a kid. Uh, before I turned pro, I rode for it when Bob Hurley ran Billabong. Um, so I knew them, but um, and they were always really great people. Um, and then I was with Quicksilver my whole career. And then I started Waves to Water and was on that path for a couple of years before they reached out. I was living in Haiti at the time. Um, and they were they, they basically said, hey, look, our company doesn't really stand for anything. Like, we wanted to stand for something. We wanted to obviously be about surfing and all this kind of stuff but and surf lifestyle but we wanted to stand for something and mean something too and we chose water um because that just makes sense and and we heard what you're doing and you know um we want to know more so i flew home from haiti and i and i, I was kind of over it to be honest because i didn't um 
not because of them, but just more like, look, my, my life, I was living in Haiti. My life had taken such a departure from the surf world that I didn't even think about like th that just seemed weird. It almost seemed like I was going backwards or something to go, but they were so cool. And Bob Hurley and, and Roger Wyatt specifically too, um, who was the CEO at the time from Nike. And he just looked at me and said, Hey, look, this, we, this is not a flash in the pan type thing. Like we want our whole brand to stand for this and we're, well, you know, we want it, what's it going to take? And it, and I, it just basically over time became this very, very good deal that they were like putting real skin in the game and they meant it. And it wasn't for one year, it was many years. And it was like really commendable. I look back and go, God, that they really, and it, and, and it, it went all the way until they sold the blue star. Right. You know, so, so, um, that's, that's like, that's, that's a long time. That's like eight years or something like that, you know? So, so they were, they were, being honest, they were being truthful in that. And so that happened organically. They were a really great support system for us and myself. Um, and then BMW was because I won this award or something, some, and I gave a speech and there was a BMW CEO like, or exec in, in the audience. And, and, um, it was like a award. I, I got a humanitarian award in Europe and, um, he came up and said, Hey, I think it's really interesting what you're doing. I want to hear more. And then we developed this huge five, countrywide um uh development program with them csr program and just based off that conversation and then paypal came because i had a friend who worked in ebay who said hey you should come in and talk to us you know it was just one of those things i did make a conscious effort by probably, probably four years in to move to new york not because i wanted to live there but but really like okay if i want to take this organization to the next level um a lot of my partners are in New York. A lot of the partners I already had, the UN's there. I mean, it was just, it just seemed like, hey, you know what? I'm going to be on the road three weeks out of every month. So that one week I'm home, why don't I just place myself in the epicenter of the get shit done capital of the world? Right. And I did that with this very clear intention and goal of like taking the organization from where it was and notching it up like five levels, right? That's what I, that was my goal. And I said, okay, I'll put in like five years or four or five years. And I did that. And it got to, and it, and it worked. So just yeah. being in New York, like there wasn't some master plan or strategy or anything like that. It was just being there. And all of a sudden I was mixing with people and it really did work and took us to a, a way bigger level. And then at a, at a certain point I was like, okay, it worked. I'm done. I'm out of here. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, so. I guess, um, so with the Hurley deal, did that provide enough funding for you to be able to hire staff? When did you start bringing on staff in the process? And it who was, was the first person you hired? Well, my dad, my dad was helping me almost immediately. Um, okay. So, so he was, but I brought on this next, the next guy was a guy named Christian Troy. Um, and he was a friend of a friend. I needed help. I was in Haiti. Um, this other group came to me while I was there and said, Hey, there's been huge floods in Pakistan. Um, we want to provide water. Um, can, can we, would you be interested in partnering with us? Can you do it? And I said, yes. And then I realized I was only one person. And I was already committed for the next six months in Haiti, like with work that I had there, contracts I had there. And I just always said yes and figured it out later. And so I was asking around, I'm like, shit, I need to find somebody <laughs> to like come in. And um, Christian was between jobs at the time and um, was interested in this. I flew him down to Haiti 
Um, I had no real plan other than I knew I was going to have a budget, a good sizable budget for the Pakistan project. So I'm like, oh, hey, I can't hire you, but I can pay you uh, weekly for the duration of this of this contract, this project. Um, if that sounds good to you while you're in transition between some other job, if this sounds interesting to you, spend some time down here with me. We'll, you know, I'll get you totally onboarded. And then if it's all good, you'll go to Pakistan, you'll lead the project there. You'll get paid well, like good, you know, good enough for that time out of the budget for Pakistan that I knew I had. And that was my first hire. I, I hired him. He, he agreed. He went to Pakistan, executed the project over a course of like six weeks. And then um, when he came home, I had like more work that came in in Haiti. And I was like, actually, stay on for another month. Uh, can you? And then eventually just got like, hey, you're on. Like, let's just stay. And then more. It just happened kind of like that. Each, each level that we grew, I had more money. So it wasn't necessarily because of Hurley. Um, they're a contributor. But it was really more so about like the projects we were getting. Yeah. And, and the, the demand for the extra manpower was paid for by those projects. So sure. it, there was a demand from, from those projects and the money was there from those projects as well. Um, how is your time spent currently? I mean, how often are you actually on the ground providing water filters and that sort of thing? Um, well, <clears throat> yeah, my relationships changed with it all because we have just a big global team now. Um, I'm still on the ground a lot. I'm just not, I mean, and we're, and we're, our program consists of digging wells, rainwater harvesting, uh, water filtration. So it's, it's, a, uh, it's not so much like, are we just implementing filters, but, um, but whatever the work is, whatever the, the, the design of the program, we have teams that are deployed and are doing that typically local teams that we've built over the years in those areas, those are the ones that are deployed and actually actively working every day um, with sort of one international or, you know, somebody from our international team guiding it. Um, and so that's sort of the dynamic of it. And then now what I do is sort of like tours where I'll check on everybody. Okay. So I check on check on all of our teams. I'm not, not out as, as much implementing myself which, which totally sucks to be honest, <laughs> because that's like my favorite part. Um, yeah. but I also am aware of the nature of how things change and, and, um, the, just the natural evolution of, of growth, you know, like the way that things grow and your relationship to the thing that you started when you have a, a bigger team changes. So I'm, I'm doing more oversight and just, kind of quality control almost just making sure everything is like in line with our bottom line and who we are and making sure that as we grow internationally we have these teams all over the world that that they're all in line with what we believe um and it still keeps me on the road a lot i'm probably gone you know for the longest time i was gone three weeks at every month forget forget about the last couple of months that's not accurate right, um right. obvious reasons but i'd say before that i was down to like w one to two weeks gone probably more on the two week side which is which is where and i'd like to get it to where it's just one week a month got it um you've since the beginning of waves for water i've heard you talk about the world water crisis is completely solvable i would like to know where are we in that process right now 
who has the biggest needs? And then also how do you prioritize who, which communities to outreach to and solve first? So the cool thing about the water crisis is it's totally solvable and meaning there's not like a big question mark when it comes to solutions, the, the solving of, or the development of vaccines, for example, or trying to cure cancer is still not solved. Those are things where their people are working tirelessly and so great that they are, but they're not solved. This one is not like that. This, this has now the solutions will get even better and better and better as they go along, but they exist right now. If you just took the solutions that exist, you could solve it. It's a matter of money and organization coordination. Right. Um, which is, which are all very challenging things to put together. That being said, uh, when I started, it was one in six people didn't have access to clean water. And now it's one in nine, basically almost one in 10 now, probably one in 10, to be honest. Um, so that's good. That's, that's, uh, that's progress, right? That's like totally. measurable progress. Those numbers have changed. It's not a result of me. It, I, I contributed towards that. Um, but, uh, at least it's something I can stand on and say, oh, there's like actual tangible pro progress. I can, I can see the change that's happening. Now I see the change in our communities we work in like overnight, massive, huge change. So that's enough for me. But if you want to talk about global water crisis, that's, um, that's cool. Like that, that, that's sort of where we're at. That's where we're at now. And so I think when you, if we take it back to that point I made earlier about looking at the, not being overwhelmed by the massive problem and looking at the, the the smaller problems that are in front of you that you can tackle that are tangible and like you can wrap your, your your arms around it that would be like taking a community i mean you're going to get really granular it's a family but then a community uh or a city or a state or a country and thinking of it with those in those finite terms and uh, applying yourself 100% to tackling that problem right there. And if you theoretically, if you do that, if you and a number of other people are doing that at the same time, it's sort of like, um, you're all, you're all these centers of an onion, right? Of onions that are out around the world. And as you keep doing that, you start fanning out into the, the rings of the onion going wider and wider and wider and wider. And hopefully they connect at some point. So you and other people doing that. And that's where the, the, the greater problem, the, the global problem is closer to being solved. So if you, that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. Do you think that you yeah. will see it solved in your lifetime? I do. Do you? I do. Yeah. I'm young, man. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not uh, questioning. I'm not discounting. I actually think, I think it'd be shh. A lot of listeners are probably shocked to hear that it's one in 10 people on the planet don't have access. I mean, that's so yeah. foreign to our experience, you know? Yeah. Well, it sounds crazy, but one in six is a lot. Oh, I know. It's even worse. It's even I worse, know. you know? I know. Yeah. So, so it's, um, no, I mean, but most of the people listening to this are, um, privileged, you know, Westerners. like just, just, just yeah, just you're privileged. Just you, totally. you grew up in a place that you, even if you're a homeless person, you could go into the Seven Eleven on the corner, use their bathroom, and put your mouth on the sink, drink the water, and not get sick. Right. That's that's called infrastructure. That's that's what we have in these places that are developed. Now, majority of the world isn't developed. Really, doesn't mean that it's 
that it's like quote third world or whatever. It's it it just means I mean some places are are totally fine, but they're not fully uh, equipped with with nationwide infra- infrastructure. Right. They're not. They're 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 great places. I mean I I travel through a lot of them, you know. But like there's probably only five or or let's say six or seven countries in the world that actually are fully developed. Yeah. That means you have healthcare, education, transportation, water, sanitation, everything done nationwide. Right. And and um, that's like a great North Star to have. That's 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 cool to to have that. It doesn't mean you need it by any means. I mean, um, but the senseless death and sickness that happens to a, um, when there's a lack of some of those uh, pillars of infrastructure, especially water. It, where it's so preventable, like that's where I find my drive because it's just like, well, I don't need all of the pillars of infrastructure really for me, but people that don't have a chance because they don't have this one basic fundamental thing for human life, this, this very, very, the most essential thing, water. Well, the most essential thing, uh, next to air. Yeah. Um, to survive then that that doesn't make any sense to me you know like yeah. let's let's just tackle that and um yeah so it's been a crazy road though well in the interest of time um yeah. let's get back real quick kind of a couple of closing questions but about more personal stuff you've obviously given up a lot to pursue the lifestyle that you've pursued for the last 10 years you've given up a lot of personal Comforts, pursuits, all that sort of stuff. Um, and now you find yourself living in Truckee. Have you been able to reinvest in your personal life since in the last few years? Uh, 100%. Um, and as, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, now, it doesn't feel like sacrifice when you're fully, fully connected with your truth or whatever you're calling your truth to be. So for me, my truth was just being fully connected with the thing I was most passionate about. Now that was surfing for a long time and then it transitioned into waves for water and being so connected with that, you get this almost superhero like energy that allows you to be able to go through crazy adversity, deal with, I mean, I, I had a couple years, I did 500,000 miles that on, you know, in a, in one year on planes, that's, that's like wrong, you know, that yeah. your, your body shouldn't go through that. But I, I was fine. I was just like, cause you're supercharged with this, this energy that comes from being fully connected with your passion. Yeah. And so, yes, I sacrificed a lot. Absolutely. But it didn't feel like that at all. Now I did definitely hit a point where I felt imbalanced um, more recently, like let's say a couple of years ago where I just felt like, God, I really, i been so head down on this whole thing and i realized that like going back to the breathing and the meditation and the physical activity which is the most important um i wasn't prioritizing those things and to be honest to be on truly honest covid the the onset of this pandemic is the thing that really made me understand those priorities because this is the longest i've been home in 20 years um and I also, my work just stopped. Like it just was frozen for a couple months. It's picking back up, but it was frozen. So I just prioritize like 
the same way that you prioritize. Okay, for example, last winter, I was my first winter up here, and my whole thing was like, I'm going to snowboard every day. No matter what, I'm going to get up, I'm going to snowboard like an hour, or if it's a pow day, all day, whatever it is. The same way you, you prioritize surfing back in the day. I barely snowboarded this winter because I was so, so busy with work. It just was a busy time, and I was just deprioritizing that. And that, I will never let that happen again, to be honest. Mm. Like, I, I, I understand now with like, it, it can't be for us in the Western world and the way we push with work, we consider those things to be luxuries, like the things you do on the weekend. Right. And that, that's, that's the exact opposite of what I believe it should be. Like, it doesn't mean you, you brush off your work. It just means that the same way you're like, well, this, this meeting is really important. It's with a potential partner. It's like super important. The same way you look at that, you're like, well, this mountain bike session that I'm going to go do right now is, is super important. Like I, it's a non-negotiable. I have to go do that. And I have to prioritize my day because I can still have the other meeting and I will, but I need this to be of equal importance in my scheduling, my priorities and all that kind of stuff. And that's the big epiphany I've had over the last couple of months where I, I feel the most grounded, the most healthy, the fittest the like mentally clear that i've felt in 20 years yeah i agree covid and just forced quarantine helps you kind of get back to the basics and realize kind of the essentials Important. that matter yeah quiet time and yeah but balance is what you're saying is key 100 percent. yeah um have you uh invested in partnership in your life personally do you have kids where are you at yeah yeah. Yes. I have a wife. Um, I, uh, don't have kids yet. We have a puppy. Um, oh, nice. so we just got a pup like uh, a couple months ago. And, um, it's funny. I've had dogs in my life, you know, growing up, but it's funny how much joy they bring to you. And we rescued him from the humane society and his, his name's Cisco. He, he's been on the roof right here. here hold on. I'll get him. So okay. <laughs> <laughs> he's a he's a beaut yeah he's so cool so that's cisco and but it's cool because we've been um all right let him down um especially the active lifestyle up here yeah. um he's been like my co-pilot you know every single day i'm like what peak are we climbing today you know like what are we doing that's amazing he goes with me everywhere we go out on the lakes and paddle and I mean, it's, it's insane. You know, the quality of life and my, my, uh, wife and I bought our house up here last February and, um, not the one we just went through, but the one before remodeled last summer. So we weren't in, we didn't get in here till, um, Thanksgiving. And it's just been, I realized it's the first, not just the house, but the place, it's the first time I've really loved where I've lived in my life, except for when I was a kid, probably in Laguna. Okay. Like that time period, I, I have very fond memories of my boys there. And like, I moved there when I was 10 from the mountains. Um, and so that junior high, high school era of being in Laguna back then um, was just, I loved that. I, I really did love that. And then I think I, then once I turned pro, I was basically out in the world. So from that point until now, I don't think I've ever really loved where I've lived. I've, I've enjoyed the chapters and like, but you know, most of the places I lived were, were strategic. Yeah. 
is, and you kind of probably knew they were transient. Yeah. And this is totally different. This is like, this is also strategic for quality of life, but it's, it's like, it really resonates with me. I'm just so in love with it. I'm having a full blown love affair with this zone. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, well, it feels superficial now, but it's a final question for everybody that I interview. It's just, whose boards are you writing right now? What shape are you working with? What was the last board that you wrote? Um, you know, the, the board that I love, that I've loved for the last year has been a Chris Christensen. Um, uh, I basically hit him up because I feel like he's really in tune with, um, well, he's he's in tune let's just put it that way but he also has a good understanding of certain waves and the way these waves are and i was living in the bay at the time when i first connected with him i was living in marin and every single like when i surf it was ocean beach and i i could not figure out my boards because whatever i rode for my whole life just doesn't work there because it's such there's so much water moving but i also didn't want to be like on a big board but i didn't I didn't even know how to order correctly because my brain was so conditioned a certain way. So I just hit Chris up and said, Hey, I know he's made some good boards for a guy. Well, definitely all the Mavs guys. And then a lot of the ocean beach guys have gotten boards from him and other friends of mine who, who liked his boards. I'd never had his boards before that. And I just said, Hey, can you make me two boards for ocean beach? This is what I weigh. And this is how tall I am. Like, that's all I did. And he said, no worries. And he sent him up and, when I first got them and I felt them, I was like, no way I would have ever ordered this. You know, like wow. if it was, if it was under my control, I wouldn't have ordered that. Cause I don't think my brain would have gone there and they're insane. Like really? Yeah. They work so good. And you know, I haven't really taken them to, I take, I've taken one on one other trip, but um, I've been mostly surfing out there and they work They're for there and they work so good. How big are the boards? One's a 5'11", which is my shorty. It, my, my regular shorty is like anywhere from like a 5'10 to a 5'11 um, that I would ride from anybody. Um, so that's the shorty, but it's a swallowtail and it's pretty full, a lot wider than I would order and, and f thicker. Um, but just super good in the hook and just really responsive. And then I, I got a 6'4", little step up that's really beefy, but... Um, works great in ocean beach i mean i ride in on big days and really good in the tube and um yeah he just nailed it it was just funny because i i just i'm like okay you are really truly gifted at what you do it's good i'm glad that you said that it's a conversation or a point that we harp on over and over in the podcast is work with a shaper like if listeners don't understand now a professional surfer who's been you know riding boards for 20 or 30 years still didn't know which boards to order and needed to rely on the shaper totally. that's the ultimate lesson so the other the other boards that i that i got um in the more recent years that i was and, and am still such a fan of and and still will get more um it's sort of the boards i i travel with to where i'm in trunks and i'm surfing like super high performance waves um which i'm sure chris would make me also an equally totally. good board if i said hey i'm going to the mental wise it, it would just be that same board maybe like brought down but the ones that worked so good were john pizel's um oh really yeah i got some boards he's a friend of mine and uh, we went on a boat trip together like four years ago or something like that and um i started getting boards some boards from him 
um, then. And there's one model, I think it was the model that he made for the stab in the dark for Dane, that Dane won, or it, it's the board that won. It was called like the 74. Um, it was just a model. I don't know if the model itself has been that successful for John, like in the public or out, out in the market, but I got those and I just, I've had some of my best surfs of my life on those boards. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I've never, I know Pizel fairly well and I've never ridden any of his boards and I actually just got a Christensen on Craigslist, believe it or not. Oh, I bet. Places. Yeah. It's hard to get his boards. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like I interview so many surfboard shapers over the years that I want to order one from everybody, but you just can't. And Christensen was one that I always wanted, but just never ended up, never got one. And then, well, uh, I was actually selling, getting rid of a few boards on Craigslist and somebody reached out and they go, Hey, I would love to get this off of you, but would you consider a trade? I've got a Christensen. I was like, dude, perfect. I've always wanted one. And I've actually been riding that the last couple of weeks. And, uh, I think it's the cafe racer model, which is like a short board wide point forward, a little more volume. And, uh, yeah, I, get it. Blast. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. I do. Yeah. I mean, I, and it, to clarify, it's not hard to get boards from him. It's just that he's, he's, booked like he has a lot oh, of yeah. people that want his boards and that's such a good thing and he'll definitely make you boards it's just you know you might have to wait a little longer and that's there's something beautiful about that you know that that still exists and i just think he's um i think he's really gifted he's also an incredible snowboarder and has had huge influence with J the jones family and uh, those snowboards and creating these really surfy snowboards um it's he's just a, a master craftsman yeah totally Awesome. Well, I appreciate all of your time. Um, I will let listeners know all of the details about Waves for Water, the programs Great. that you have, the way that people can get involved, all that sort of stuff. Um, I'll do all of that in post-production, but I really appreciate you taking so much time. And yeah, this is awesome. This is a lot of stuff that I had not heard about you before. So <laughs> I'm thrilled for you to be able to share it. Cool. Thanks. Well, thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, you're welcome. All right. I'll talk to you soon. All right, thanks. Two jumps in a week. I bet you think that's pretty clever, don't you, boy? Flying on your motorcycle, watching all the ground beneath you drop. You kill yourself for recognition. You kill yourself to never Another mirror You're turning into something You are not Don't leave me high Don't leave me dry Don't leave me high Don't leave me dry Waveswforwater.org is their website. You can support them in various ways, uh, but one of the coolest is to become a courier. That is, you bring water filters on your next trip abroad and then gift them to a local community. If you aren't traveling anywhere, you can actually click a button to support a courier, or you can support a fundraiser on their website. You can start your own fundraiser. Because they are a nonprofit, it is all tax deductible for you, so there is no reason to not help solve the world water crisis. Access to clean water should be a basic human right. 
We completely have the resources to ensure that, and John has provided the organization and the infrastructure. So I've linked to all of that stuff on surfsplendorpodcast.com, of course. You can go there and see imagery of John surfing. You can leave a comment for him in the comment section. I will ensure that he sees that. And then, of course, if you enjoy this show, I encourage you to share it with a friend. That is how we uh, continue to get guests, great guests like John himself, to participate in these conversations. So drop them uh, a note on Instagram, slide into their DMs with our post promoting this episode. Or you can also rate and review it in iTunes or whatever podcast app you use. That helps strangers to find it. So just imagine if... You just shared the show with one person who hadn't heard of it. We could actually double our listenership next episode. That would be huge for us. So please share it with friends. Thank you for that. Thank you always for tuning in. Really appreciate your support here on Surf Splendor and, of course, on The Grit with Chaz Smith, Spit with Scott Bass. He also does an interview show called The Boardroom Show, so go check that out. And, of course, Donald Brink, surfboard shaper Donald Brink, has a show that we help do some of the back-end production on, and that is called Swell With My Soul. So you can find that as well. Plenty of surf podcast content to be had these days. So I hope that you're enjoying, and uh, I'll be back here next week with an all-new episode of Surf Splendor. But until then, this is, of course, David Scales reminding you to get back into the ocean, share some waves, and shred on.